Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, we come to these scriptures with all of us. We come with our history, we come with our present. We come with hopes and dreams in our hearts and you accept us and receive us just as we are. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In the United Church of Christ, there is a very thorough and lengthy process to become a minister-to-be. There's a process we must go through in order to become approved for ordination in the United Church of Christ, which means I get to wear like the fancy collar and the robes and stuff, but I use those mostly for funerals and protests now. This process includes educational components, it includes essays, reference checks, and interviews by various committees across make their candidates pass these incredibly difficult exams. And their final step of the process, our tradition likes to make it a little bit more relational. That sounds really nice, right? But um, they hold what we call an ecclesiastical council. And basically, a call goes out to all of the clergy people in the area who are UCC. And they invite us to one place, and we gather in this room with the candidate for ordination. They stand before this entire room of all these people who are super friendly and have, have your good in mind, of course. Um, some who have been in ministry for decades. And the candidate is asked to respond to rapid-fire questions, okay? On the spot. You don't prepare for these, not, I mean, don't do your homework beforehand. So no pressure. Easy peasy. Not an intimidating in the least. So April uh, 2nd, 2017, at about four months pregnant with my youngest, I took my place at the pulpit at St. Peter's UCC in Reading. It's a beautiful sanctuary. It's like in the round, right? Um, so I was part of the circle of folks. I'm surrounded by 50 or 60 clergy persons, including our conference minister and conference staff. And I begin to answer the questions that they've submitted. It's going pretty well. Near the end of the questioning, though, my conference minister's question came to me. Now, all these were on papers. We knew it was him, but his question comes, and it says, which of the UCC ministerial code do you find the biggest challenge in your ministry? Now, the UCC ministerial code is certainly an incredible document that many of my colleagues um, have not revisited. <laughs> <laughs> in several years. Maybe like when they got ordained, they, they visited it then. Um, it's not necessarily something we memorize, but it's something that, that we're supposed to kind of know in our gut, right? So you could kind of hear like, like little murmurings around the room, like how is she going to deal with this one? And so did I panic? Absolutely not. You see, I came prepared. 
I came with a handy-dandy notebook full of important documents about this thick. <laughs> full of important documents, pieces of information that I might need in times such as these. And as I pulled out said notebook, you kind of heard this, oh, she did the thing. A little smile from the conference minister, of course. But I answered it. I, I looked at the sheet. I said, oh, yeah, this is, where, this is what's hardest for me. And I immediately felt relief. I had answered the hard ones I had passed. But there was one more question. Um, some idiot uh, submitted the question that read, who is your favorite person in the Trinity? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who's my favorite? And why would you choose that? You know, God's son... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus, by the way. I really, really like Jesus. Um, but I rolled my eyes because I knew that my husband was the one who had submitted this because we had joked about this beforehand. And I proceeded to answer the question. Yes. The little bit of sarcasm. Um, so the group was satisfied with my answers, and they dismissed me from the room so that they could vote in the moment whether or not I could be ordained. Again, low stakes here. I'd been training and preparing for this for, what, like five, six years at this point? Um, so those moments of waiting, I don't even remember who was in the hall with me. I was, like, pacing. Um, it felt like I was waiting for several hours. But good news. <laughs> I received a unanimous vote of approval and finally exhaled for the first time in about an hour. Tears in my eyes and a heart full of gratitude. I had finally made it. I was now one of them. Were you? Was he there? <gasps> That's right. You are my first congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, you were in my belly. He was in support, too. So this might sound a bit like a hazing ritual, and it kind of felt like that a little bit. But at its core, this tradition of holding an ecclesiastical council makes the final step of preparation a relational one rather than just an intellectual one. By this point in the process, you have completed all your schooling, right? You've written all the papers, you've checked off all the tasks, but in the UCC, we respond to the call of Christian ministry in community, not just as individuals. The community listens to God together with the candidate, even if it feels like a lot of pressure. They're helping to discern together the call of God on that person's life. They're trying to find out, not only do they know their stuff, but also that they know Jesus, right? You can know a lot of things from a lot of books, but knowing Jesus, that's most important. And also that that person can help other people know Jesus too. 
So this event gives the clergy community the opportunity to affirm that calling from God with that person, receiving them to join in the ranks of faithful ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's actually really beautiful. Uh, situation in retrospect. Um, it's beautiful when you're watching somebody else do it, I guess is what I should say. The gospel story today is a, is a strange one. It's very familiar to a lot of us uh, because of John 3.16, right? Some bumper stickers, billboards. Um, what wrestler is it that Stone Cold Steve Austin uses it like John 3.16, big deal. But the actual story is kind of strange. It's an evening meeting, right? We, we typically see Jesus on the road or on top of a mountain during the day, feeding people, healing people. But this happens at night. And it feels a bit like a one-on-one -on -one ecclesiastical council. You see, Nicodemus was a Jewish leader of the Pharisee sect, a teacher of the law, well-educated, and very concerned about the daily lives of the people. Sometimes scripture paints the Pharisees as, as these like bullies or these mean people, but honestly, they, it comes from a place of, of desire for rightness, a desire for purity. So this Nicodemus, he and his colleagues had heard of Jesus. Now, Jesus was like a street preacher. He wasn't, you know, he didn't follow at the footsteps that we know of, of any particular uh, teacher of the law. And while he was from that, that sect, that, that brand of, of Judaism, he kind of came out of nowhere. Um, he wasn't part of, of the elite, right? So they had heard of him, and they had witnessed him performing miracles. The very first miracle was basically keeping the party going, right? The bride and the groom ran out of wine at their wedding festivities. And his mom was like, hey, Jesus, you can do something about this. And he turns water into wine. Just this beautiful celebration of life and love. And so they were convinced that he was a man of God. But this Nicodemus wanted to hear from Jesus himself. Wanted to engage with him personally. It's much different to have people answer your questions from a distance, but a personal encounter with one another. That's what Nicodemus was going for. Because clearly, Jesus had gifts. But is he one of us? Does he really love God? Does he really love the things that are right, the things that are holy, the things that are true? Is he able to face the realities of the day and be able to maintain the traditions that his people have held to for generations? Or is he going to be some radical? Is he going to cause trouble for us? Is he going to put all of us in danger? Nicodemus needed to see for himself. So he engaged in a conversation with Jesus. Well, kind of a conversation. Expecting Jesus to give him the answers that he needed, right? Satisfactory answers that were understandable and that would fit into a neat worldview that Nicodemus had come to him with. 
But Jesus does not give him that surprise. Instead, he gives him the answers and assurance. Instead of giving him the answers and the assurance, it seems that Nicodemus is looking for, Jesus moves beyond the assumptions and challenges that the teacher and challenges the teacher beyond his understanding. He gives him more to chew on. He pushes him to have more questions than answers. Jesus invites Nicodemus in deeper, offers him more to think about. He basically responds, Nicodemus, there is more beyond what you think you know. You think you have all the answers, but you got to look beyond what you know. It was like he was speaking a different language. Nicodemus doesn't want to stand up and boldly proclaim that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was right about the things he taught, or even that he didn't deserve to be arrested. But he pointed to the law. That's where he knew, right? That was his, his frame. That's where he knew, right? That was his, his frame. He knew he had to be careful because he might be seen as dangerous as well. The third and last time that we hear about Nicodemus was after Jesus was crucified, when another disciple of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, a secret follower of Jesus, had asked Pilate for Jesus' body so he could prepare him for burial, according to their customs. After Joseph, Joseph took Jesus' body away, Nicodemus also came with resources to help Joseph do that and helped Joseph lay Jesus in the tomb. Nicodemus, according to what we know about him, wasn't a bold believer like Peter, James, John, his other disciples. His story really isn't all that striking at all, to be honest, even if he seemed like he was an ally of Jesus. We have no evidence of a drastic conversion experience like we do with many of the other people who followed Jesus. We don't know if, to use Jesus' word, he was ever born anew. But we can really only assume that he became a follower of Jesus by his actions after Jesus died. So this story of Nicodemus has been confounding me this week. I've been struggling with his story and this interaction with Jesus because it doesn't have a resolution. Does everybody like a, a good ending to a story where you like can lay your worries to, at rest? Nicodemus was one of us, a trusted teacher, knowledgeable about the law, intelligent, loyal, and full of integrity. He had the right beliefs, but Jesus wanted to call him beyond those beliefs into actually knowing God through the person of Jesus to be born again or born anew, as some translations would say, with his spirit awakened to the movement and breath of God in the world. Beliefs and doing the right thing help us to feel a sense of control. <laughs> but what about when the right thing, as we thought we knew it, is actually in contradiction to the truest Jesus didn't feel limited by the law. That was the, 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 the guidepost 
for his contemporaries. But it seemed that he knew something deeper and more important than keeping the traditions of old. But he fulfilled the law. He didn't disregard it. He didn't think it didn't matter. He fulfilled it. But if he fulfilled it, seeing the law as love. He encouraged people to keep asking questions. To never stop pursuing the heart of God. To never settle for easy answers. I love easy answers. Because those easy answers don't leave room for complexity. Nuance and sometimes even love. The law offers order, protection, direction even, but the law is not God. I find myself in a similar position to Nicodemus. I think that's probably why I've been like unsettled by the story. Because I find great comfort in knowing what to expect, to know what's coming, to know that if I do this, this is going to happen, that there's a perfect equation for everything. That's great for me. Not good at math, but I do like when the equations work out. I like knowing that there's a, a, a dependable routine and knowing where the path leads. But all throughout the scriptures, it seems, Jesus didn't operate in a straight line, but in con- he didn't operate out of conventional wisdom, even. Not when it didn't work. He didn't throw out the law and create a new one. He was a Jewish man deeply steeped in the religion of his people, but he was constantly reinterpreting it through the lens of wisdom and love. Like I said earlier, John 3.16 is a passage in the scriptures that is maybe one of the most recognized besides the Ten Commandments. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. It is a scripture that has been used in so many different ways to talk about the love of God, to highlight the differences between the saved and the unsaved. It gets described as a perfect summation of the gospel message, one that requires intellectual assent to get to heaven. But when we boil things down to intellectual assent, we miss some really important stuff. Eternal life, according to Jesus himself, isn't necessarily a ticket to heaven. If you go a couple chapters, well, a couple more lot chapters, to chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says this to his disciples at their final dinner together. This is eternal life, to know you, the only God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. It's to know God, not just to believe a set of beliefs. Believing is much more relational, from Jesus' perspective. It's action-oriented. It requires something of us, and it leaves a lot to mystery, and that's the part that I have a hard time with. 
I'm recognizing that in this story, this way of being unsettles something in me because something that can't be contained leaves me with little control. Things aren't always as simple as I would like them to be, and God is always calling me to live in the complexity instead. If the goal is to know God and not just do for God or not just believe the right things (coughs) about God, there's a lot more ambiguity. Knowing God calls out of me that I see the world as God sees it. Knowing God calls out of me that I see my neighbor the way that God sees them. Knowing God calls, me, calls out of me the need to love folks I might not want to love. There's a couple. And knowing God calls me to be courageous and step into things unknown because God is always at work in the world. And more importantly, God is always at work in me. All of this uncertainty makes me feel really uncomfortable, but Jesus seems to speak to Nicodemus and often to us in riddles. But there's one certainty at the center of of all of this. At the center of all of this, of all things, of all teachings, is that God is love. It's always been about love. Jesus says in our gospel passage, God sent Jesus into the world because of love. Our last verse reads, God didn't send his son into us. So while Jesus continues to challenge us, especially when we feel certain about the rules and we get stuck in our heads, (laughs) when we feel left with more questions than answers, may we trust that God is for us. May we trust that by not accepting easy answers, we are choosing the better way. And most importantly, may we trust the promise of God's unending, persevering love along the journey, allowing the Spirit to be our helper and our God. Let us pray.